If you enjoy this episode of Obscure Obsessions, please remember to rate us, review us, and subscribe. Thank you for your support. Hi, I'm Nick Zaccario. And I'm Taylor Zaccario. And on this episode of Obscure Obsessions 2. I sat there <laughs> thinking, what the hell is going on in the streets of Manhattan? Is four the one where it's the grandfather's like dying of like yeah, that, dinosaur cancer? Yeah, <laughs> All right. Has nothing to do with a movie where a magpie wants to eat lasagna. Get the phone! Get the phone! <laughs> He's gonna eat one of the tertiary characters? Sure. It's like saying we're gonna eat, you know, Megan. <laughs> you know? And now, here are your hosts. Oh, you'll be glad to know that Megan responded with, You're so welcome, Taylor, and the hat looks great on you. Even though I can barely see my 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 head. But I will I mean, I, I, I will admit it does look good. But I will be wearing this hat. Now, is it? Because I, I have one, too, but it's not. I haven't worn it. So is it, like, thin enough material where it's going to be Oh, this will be good. nice in the summer? Yeah, this will be good. And then my set, yeah. you know, I was this trying to think. One. if Because you have your Roseanne set and then this one. So I really just keep giving you reasons to never, ever come out of your Well, we remember what happened with the Roseanne set. It flew away. It flew away. <laughs> <laughs> but that, this one I will, I will refuse to let fly fly away. I'm trying to see on this. You know, it's 15 kaiju classics of the Showa era. None of these you've seen, or, or uh, well, some of them were on HBO, right? Some of them right? might have my, some of them might. That's my that's my Australian. Oh uh, my! Well, here's the thing: is like as I'm reading here, there's multiple. First of all, a lot of excellent features on here which is why interview. i know that I'm, I'm not seeing you again until christmas new interview with alex cox thank you but some of these i have seen but most of them i have not i have not seen son of godzilla oh no i saw that once i've not seen godzilla versus hedora i've not seen godzilla versus megalon i don't think i've seen i've and most importantly i have not seen the original japanese version of king kong versus godzilla which right. was never released in America until, until this very thing. Because that's the part of the other thing, too, that I like when Criterion does these, especially with their foreign films. Like, there's certain um, versions. For example, the um, there's a Jackie Chan Police Story 1 and 2 set that I have where it's a alternate version of the movie depending on the track that you choose to listen to the audio. So it changes, like, not only the, the way that the dialogue is heard, but also it makes the movie longer. Yeah, well, like, the original King Kong versus Godzilla was re-edited to be for kids. And there's a lot of this weird, unfunny humor that they added in to make it funny and appealing. And that was what year? 62 or 61. That was only the third Godzilla film. But, there but they were already more. at that point trying to make Godzilla less an ecological foreboding figure but like king kong though had been around since the 30s. 30s but at this time in japan king kong was more popular than godzilla they had re Weird. they had re-released king kong in the 1950s which then spurred the original godzilla gotcha, so gotcha. it's sort of thing that they met each other but that's what i'm going to be because i've been doing a don bluth binge binge uh, but now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to move over to a... Because uh, you were on a monster kick not too long ago. Mm -hmm. And so now this will reignite those. Yeah, in fact, a few weeks ago, I, I watched Godzilla vs. Kong, the remake. It's unfair to call it a remake. It's, it's the, whatever the it's called. The 2021 version. Reboot is probably more accurate. But yeah, and then I was watching... Well, I've been trying to watch Moscow on the Hudson, 
which is a... <laughs> <laughs> is that anything related to monster movies? No. Okay. It's a Robin Williams, Paul Mazursky film where he plays a Russian defector who ends up in New York. I've just been keep getting distracted. I've been trying to watch it, but I end up watching Roseanne instead. <laughs> Which was taken away from you. Taken away maybe by a storm. Although, in honor of Easter, I did buy, and I'm glad you didn't buy it for me, I did buy Steel Magnolias, finally, for $5. Wow. Whole de- it has, and surprisingly, it has some really good special features for $5. I mean, it's only a DVD. It's only mm-hmm. a, a special... Um, this is more to just hold you over until, yeah, until eventually they release until they it again. release a uh, special two-disc Steel Magnolias, which I, I could have sworn that I either owned on hard copy or I owned... Um, well, I know for a fact that you had you know saved on your Netflix queue because you were yes. watching it That That must online. have been what it was because I had it. And, and, uh, and unfortunately, I'm, 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 I'm sad to say, is no longer on Netflix, so I had to buy it. I had to purchase it. But here, let me tell you some of the uh, Don Bluth films that I that I rewatched. Okay. In in honor of our discussion, uh, so a few weeks ago I watched Rockadoodle, and then sure. I watched it again last night. This morning, while I was grumpy and and, and in a foul mood because I was awake, I watched Thumbelina, which I never saw before. I don't think I've ever seen that one. Do not apply. And then last, on my birthday, the 15th, I watched two very different Don Bluth films. Can I take a guess? Go ahead, please. Two very different. Different ends of the spectrum. Because Don Bluth films, Um, thinking about them, they really exist on an interesting spectrum. A a wide-ranging spectrum. Some of... And one spectrum is much more successful than the other spectrum. Would it be Fern Gully? That's not Don Bluth. Oh, damn. People well, think it is, but... Troll in Central Park? No. That's the only one I did not get to... Pebble and the Penguin. That's one of the... Okay, that's one end of the spectrum. The other one is on the other end of the spectrum. Five Goes West? No. Not technically Don Bluth. Right. Don Bluth only did... Be the first one. Okay, okay, here's a little other trivia. He did all those, you know, he did Land Before Time uh, and uh, the Fievel movies, which then had like 50 sequels, right. particularly Land Before Land Time. Land Before Time especially. He was only involved in one sequel slash spinoff to one of his films. What film did he do? A, was he doing the sequel? Was he involved in Journey to the Mist? No. Because I would, I was gonna say that would have made sense for you was why you liked it so much. Was that it? That one I just like because someone got it for me. On All VHS. dogs go to heaven. No, good guess though. That that was another one that had a whole bunch of sequels. Well, I guess had two sequels. A sequel and then I think uh, Christmas, a Christmas special. And I think there was a series. What's the only Don Bluth film that had a sequel slash spinoff slash prequel? Oh, um, you got it. Uh, Anastasia. Uh, and Bartok the Magnificent. Magnificent. That's, and I, I have not seen that one. But I think there's a version of Anastasia on DVD that came with Bartok as a separate disc. So you oh, could, really? You would have Anastasia and all the special features on one disc, and then Bartok the Magnificent was the second disc. Well, the other movie I watched on my birthday, which you still got to guess, I remember buying it on VHS at... Was it West Coast or Sun Coast at the Paramus Mall? That was Sun Coast. At Sun Coast. And it came in this very long, wide... It was the first film and its sequel, side by side. And they were in this... They were held together in plastic. And it was like uh-huh. a brick. It was like this really okay. long brick. This is this is drawing... Uh, I'm, I'm 
remembering this. And this I this I consider to be one of the darkest of the Don Bluth films, both visually, thematically, storytelling-wise, and certainly in terms of um, certain deaths that occur <laughs> in this movie. And it's not American Tale. No. But... Oh, Land Before Time. No. Think America. What what's American Tale about? History and immigration. But who's it about? Oh, um, what kind of what kind of animal? Mouse. Okay. What's the other Don Bluth mouse movie? You're gonna kick yourself when you realize you're I'm going sure to I do am. a uh, gold member and kick your <laughs> kick your Nikes. Uh, <laughs> rollerblades into Beyonce's face. You're gonna be so <laughs> mad when you. Shazam, sucker. <laughs> I don't know. Secret? Oh, Secret of Nim. Secret of Nim. That was the other one that I watched. And Secret of Nim, I think it is the first Don Bluth movie. Because remember, Don Bluth worked for Disney and then had a falling out at Disney. Was this during Katzenberg era? Uh, or am I... I think it was a little bit... Be- I think it had been a little bit before Katzenberg. But he, he was a Disney animator. Let me see. What was the ones that he did? Okay. Okay. You, you know this one, the small one. It's on. We've talked about that somewhere. It's on um, Disney Plus, uh-huh. and I think it's like a Christmas story uh, about a donkey. Oh yeah, yeah. And he, he yeah he worked on films in, in different capacities going back into. Uh, but the, as the an rescu- animator, yeah, as an animator, The Rescuers. He was an animator on Robin Hood. He was Winnie the Pooh and Tigger too. And he did a, several scenes of The Fox and the Hound, I guess. But then he broke off and did his own things. His, he wanted to do his own movies. And then, of course, he paired with Spielberg, and they did a whole bunch of movies. But his first one, if I'm reading this correctly, yeah, is The Secret of Nim, which that's an incredibly dark movie. I I, I forgot how dark of a movie that is. Because mm-hmm. remember that Timothy is like the little mouse, and he's dying of pneumonia, and they have to move the house because the farmer is going to start to crop, and they're oh, going to, to, right. to run over the, the farm and kill Timothy. But this was also during that era, if I'm not mistaken, of when, like, all children's movies were set and determined on making you horrified for your life. Yeah, this was during that dark period of time. Where you had, like, was this during, like, Black Cauldron, Sword in the Stone? Yeah, that, that kind uh, of era. Witches. Yeah, you know, it's that, like, well, it's that 80s era of. Where it's just, like, there was kid movies. Dark fantasy. That were just insanely yeah, scary. Yeah, a few years earlier, they did Watership Down. Which is, that's one of the most depressing and movies that, I think that I've one, ever seen. That's what we were talking about in the car before about animated movies or cartoons being always said, well, they're for kids. Right. But in Watership Down, that's barely a kid's movie, if it's a kid's movie at all. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't ever show a kid that unless they were just about to graduate high school. It is just so depressing. I, I, and I remember so... yeah, in Watership Down, there's a scene where the rabbit gets caught in like a snare. And it's fighting, and it's and it's getting, it's it's getting like ble- like it's bleeding, and but and strangely enough, in Secret of Nim, there's scenes that are just as dark. I mean, there's the scene where Mrs. Frisbee goes to the Great Owl, who's voiced by um, John Carradine, who, who, oh, okay. who played a lot of vampire characters and things like that, and and she's like going through this cave, and then there's the, a little bug or a spider that's uh-huh. crawling towards her, and, and this big giant claw grabs the and squishes it. Very dark. That was the other one that I watched. But the sequel is just as dark, you think? No, the sequel is the exact opposite. Okay. That's Secret of Nim 2, Timmy to the Rescue. Which even that alone gives you a clue. Because that has, like, there's no songs 
in Secret of Nim. Right. There's no singing. There's no dancing. Which that already does bring it down in terms of, not down, but it shows you the type of tone that it's going for. Because yeah. a lot of Disney movies, regardless of whether they want to or not, have musical elements. And it's actively trying not to have musical elements. Then, of course, he did American Tale, which is probably his most famous. Yeah, Don't I would think? say that's probably the most famous. And then Land Before Time, probably second Yeah, that's most probably, famous. probably. Or like you said, though, where it's like I mistook Fern Gully and still do mistake Fern Gully. Well, the other serious one, you have really dark ones like Secret of Nim. Oh, Anastasia's probably pretty. Anastasia's another one that is dark because, I mean, that involves, you know, the Russian Revolution. Rasputin is like falling apart. The old dowager empress, she's being lied to by right. people pretending to be her dead, murdered granddaughter. <laughs> kind of heavy. Yeah. And then Land Before Time, which I watched last week also, that's heavy too. Very heavy. Where the mother gets killed. Is for the one where it's the grandfather's like dying of like yeah, that, dinosaur cancer? Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's dying. <laughs> I think he's dying of celiac disease actually. Jeez. <laughs> because he needs a certain kind of, he only eats a certain kind of, of um, flower or uh, leaf oh, okay. that will cure him. But what's weird about those is like the first one has, which I forgot. The first Land Before Time has no singing in it either. Is it? Oh yeah, I and it's guess so. really and it's quick. It's only like an hour six minutes. It's very very quick. Apparently, because George Lucas and Steven Spielberg produced Land Before Time, they wanted it to be like you know the scene in Fantasia where it's the dinosaur sequence. They wanted it to be that with no dialogue, where it was hmm. just them talking. Or, oh, that wouldn't have worked. Not them though. talking, but they they were, they wanted a little bit. Like an abstract type a, of thing. A little more adult, I guess. But then Don Bluth turned into a movie that was even darker than they thought. And so like 20 minutes of Land Before Time is missing because it was never, so dark. never been revealed. No, because it was so dark that Spielberg and Lucas were like, you're going to scare all the kids. Because, right. you know, the sharp tooth, who's the the, the T-Rex. Uh-huh. The, the mother is killed. And there's also the, I feel like it's a little common though, is like with that group of friends, there's the one that's just unnecessarily annoying. Yeah, there's a couple. But there's the one that's like also kind of a, a dick to Littlefoot. Oh, oh that's Sa Sarah. Yeah. Who well, I always thought it was Sarah, but it's like Sarah, Sarah Top. Like Sarah and of course, the great Judith Barzi in her last role before she was murdered by her father. Thea, get off that rope. Thea, get off that rope. No. Ow! <laughs> the great Jaws Force, <laughs> Judith Barzi. But like that was the one I watched. I watched growing up. So the, the nostalgia for you is really Land Before Time, Secret of Nim. Secret of Nim. Well, you didn't have Mrs. Spina. No. I could have sworn you had Mrs. Spina. But you didn't. I, I guess not. But I remember in the third grade, Mrs. Spina read to us a book called Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. Now, I had seen The Secret of Nim. So I was very confused as a kid. Why did they change Frisbee oh. to Brisbee in the movie? And what happened was that the company that made Frisbee was like, uh-uh, nuh-uh, girlfriend. That's a <laughs> They're going to sue. So what they did, and this is pretty incredible if you watch the, the movie. I thought this was kind of fun. And I knew this this pastime watching, I was paying attention, is that they had to, di not digitally, whatever that's called, go back and find where every actor had a brr sound in order to put brr in front of fur. To turn frisbee oh, so to this frisbee. Was a post thing. This was a post thing. They'd, so they had already they'd recorded, recorded everything. Frisbee. They recorded everything as frisbee. Now that's more tedious than <laughs> I've ever had to deal with. 
So I'm I'm <laughs> glad I don't. We've never had to do that. I, I, I got some bad news for you afterwards. I'm gonna tell you about. Just we have to. Oh, okay. We have to change the, the pronunciation of obscure obsessions to obscure obsessions. <laughs> but yeah, they had to go back and and whatever that's called, but with probably like a they probably I like mean, a razor probably blade. had it on. Well, oh, that's eighty two. No, they were probably still recording and they were, on tape. And, yeah, so. and they were and they were not. Um, they were not. They weren't Amblin yet. They didn't have the backing of, of Spielberg oh. yet. So they were sort of independent and trying to prove themselves. And the other thing that's fun with um, Don Bluth films is you have uh, Cannonball Run 2's Dom DeLuise, who shows up in a bunch of these. Oh, yeah, that's true. He's not he's not in Barakadoodle, but he's in he's, he's Jeremy, the crow, in this one. He's he's the little dog in All Dogs Go to Heaven. Oh, okay. Okay, so, so nostalgia we're talking about. For me, it would be... Land Before Time, definitely Land Before Time. Brockadoodle, of course. All Dogs Go to Heaven 2, which is I, not technically Don Bluth, but no, that's but the I, one I always watch. That one also, it's that weird thing of they made a first movie that has so many just ridiculously sad moments, so the sequel has to be a little bit in, lighter. In fact, you're right. That's another movie that's pretty dark. I mean, that's about dogs dying. dying. And then George, George Hearn. Is right, Sweeney Todd Sweeney himself. Todd, second Sweeney Todd and Grandpa from Barney's Big Adventure right. is uh, uh, the he's the main dog, the, right? No, he's the evil cat. Oh. The main dog in the second one, I think, is Charlie Sheen. Really? And the dog in the first one is Burt Reynolds reteaming him with Don DeLuise from, from Cannonball, Cannonball Run, Run Two. Two. It all comes back to Cannonball <laughs> Run Two. Then, then the other one that. that that I have a weird relationship with is American Tale because when 9/11 happened, I was I was in the third I was in the fourth grade. Okay, and we knew something was going on, but the teachers wouldn't tell us. Right. So Mrs. Lusberg, my fourth grade teacher, said we're going to go into Ms. Menike's room, which was also Mrs. Spina's room the year before, but they switched. It was very weird mckay politics and it was the it was the art room initially when i was a kid and then uh -huh. it became the art room again but then it's not anymore now anyways 9-11 <laughs> they we know something's up but the teachers aren't telling us and then they started playing a movie so they say we're going to go into miss Menike's room and we're going to show you a movie as a kid i thought she said this has something to do with what's going on in new york so when I saw American Tale for the first time, I sat there <laughs> thinking, what the hell is going on in the streets of Manhattan? I'm, I literally was thinking, oh my God, like there's a scene in American Tale where the bad guys are riding around on cats. Uh -huh. and they're like throwing torches. That's right. It's supposed to be, you know, the Bolshevik or whatever. Mm -hmm. So the whole movie I'm sitting there thinking, what the hell's happening? <laughs> As an adult... I look back and I think she probably said this has nothing to do or this doesn't because I don't know what the correlation was between 9-11 and that. So that was the other one that and then the other one for me as a kid was Anastasia, which for me as an adult is probably still my favorite. I think that one, I, it just has so much to it. It's it's I think it's probably the most layered and like complicated maybe isn't the right word but it's it's definitely the most refined i think and definitely the one that comes closest to being a disney movie yeah it's so much so that it's on disney plus and so and thumbelina is so on. there's that weird mix where then it it confuses people i think because they're like 
oh, this wasn't a Disney movie originally? Right. Any confusion is now... Is now exacerbated. Is actually mute, moot for the most part because now they are technically Disney movies. Although I'm not sure all of them. Because no. obviously not all but of them Anastasia were made... Anastasia was 20th Century Fox. Anastasia so. was... Thumbelina apparently was too. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what, what were the ones for you? Which ones did well, you watch? Well, for me, I mean, I would say in a different way than like you had land before time and then you liked a lot of a bunch of the subsequent films afterwards of land before time yeah i liked one and four the best so for me that was an american tale i really liked the first movie and then there were two of the other sequels although i never really cared for Philo goes west which is the one that people seem to talk about the most but there were two other ones that i think were i think they were kind of a um brave little toaster goes to mars and to the rescue type of situation where they came out relatively close and it was um mystery of the night monster and then the treasure of manhattan island i always really liked those two sequels as a kid because they had some sort of swashbuckling element to Mm -hmm. it and it was especially the manhattan um murder mystery uh no that's that's a monster one that one was like kind of almost like leaning into Alvin and the Chipmunks meet the Wolfman territory, which was one of my favorite ones growing up as a kid. I liked Land Before Time, but not to the degree of seeing as many of the films that came out after it. And I also never really liked the Sarah character. Yeah, she's kind of the bully. Yeah, and so I just kind of, it it put a bad taste in my mouth for the rest of that series. Because I'm like, ugh, we're going to have to deal with these specifically and like feeling like oh i don't want to sit around watching movies with this person you know what's very odd is troll in central park i remember having on vhs okay getting through the opening credits and then never finishing interesting i that was when in my my attempt to fill in the blanks uh-huh in my don bluth viewing history i could not find that was the only one that was either not streaming or i just don't think that it's particularly oh, that, well known that and bar talk the magnificent, magnificent. Well, here, here's the rundown. And you can see how he's how he had this major pit in his career. It went Secret of Nim, American Tale, Land Before Time, All Dogs Go to Heaven. I think those are pretty much well-liked. Yeah. All Dogs Go to, Go to Heaven, I think, is the transitional period to where he got to Rock-A-Doodle, which, which, even though you and I love, is not was not a success. Pretty, pretty much a stinker. Thumbelina, which was one of the most uninspired movies i've ever seen in my life really even though the sadly late great gilbert gottfried is in it there was nothing original about it. there was nothing inspired about it it was just you know she's a little girl a little or a little um pixie or she's fairy, a fairy right? without wings and she falls in love with a king or the prince of the fairies and then she gets kidnapped by voiced by charo who is not a, a scary villain and her 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 toad's son and she has to find her way home and it just You've seen it a million times. Uh-huh. Jody Benson, who, of course, is uh, the Little Ariel. Mermaid, does the voice not very good. Then it comes A Troll in Central Park, which, as I say, I, I don't still think that it was seen. that well liked. I just no. remember having that memory. No, most professional critics, I'm reading this off of Wikipedia, it was a box office bomb, and most professional critics and Bluth fans have regarded it as Bluth's worst film. Wow. Which is pretty amazing considering that following that was The Pebble and the Penguin, which. When I was a kid, this was another one. I remember them showing it on, I think, I want to say Toon Disney. I want to say Toon Disney. I but rem- you know what? That was another one for a while. I feel like it was either on 
streaming services or like I just feel like I saw it on like the four dollar rack at Best Buy. Yeah, like, well, it was like always there. I mean, the re- in recent years, it's always on streaming. It's on Tubi right now. It's right. on I think IMDb TV. But in the old days, I remember just being on like at one o'clock in the afternoon, Pebble and the Penguin, and I had very fond memories of it until I rewatched it. Uh oh. And I realized it's better than Thumbelina. You have better voice acting. So Thumbelina for you is bottom of the barrel. Absolutely bottom, without a doubt. But again, Pebble and the Penguin, this, and Barry Manilow did the, the music for that one and Thumbelina, and it's terrible. I, I do think of the Family Guy, <laughs> where oh Quagmire, oh you came and you gave without saying. <laughs> but Pebble and Penguin step above that. Step above that had um, Martin Short is good, Jim Belushi. He's not the he's not the best Belushi. Although I like him more than John Belushi. No, not really. <laughs> I'm trying to keep with my odd brother. Uh, right. And then Tim Curry. It saves it a little bit. But he's playing the villain with an accent that is supposed to, I think, be like Larry the Lobster from SpongeBob. Oh. And he's sort of like, I'm a tough penguin, but I'm I'm sort of a surfer. And I'm going Weird. surfing. Like he's kind of, like it's Tim Curry if he grew up in Pasadena, California. It's not the best Tim Curry performance. And it's we have so many penguin movies out there. Yeah. Because basically, Martin Short plays a penguin who's in love with a beautiful penguin. He finds a pebble, but he gets... And I'm, I'm, I'm realizing this is a kind of a common motif a little bit in John Don, Don Bluth, Bluth. About a character having to return home after being taken from home. So that's in Thumbelina. That's in um, Pebble and the Penguin. It's in Rockadoodle. It's in Rockadoodle. You could even argue in Land, Land Before, Before Time, Time a little bit. So Pebble and Penguin for me was kind of middling. Then Anastasia, which for me is the, the best one. I haven't seen Bartok the Magnificent. And I definitely saw Titan AE. I saw it, I, I think, don't maybe remember. twice. And I think as a kid, I enjoyed it. And then I saw maybe as a teenager or just just going into high school or something like that. And I remember feeling like, wow, this feels like a ripoff of so many other things. Like, I felt like I was like, this is the lesser Atlantis. Yeah, it has that feeling. And that's the one that de- that destroyed that company. Uh, oh, right. 20, uh, uh, Fox Animation. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is Joss Whedon a part of that? Yes. Okay. He was one of the right. Apparently, they had a lot of... John August, actually, strangely oh, enough, who another, also was uh, a... Tim Burton alum. Tim Burton alum. He uh, he was involved with that, and that's what they had. I, I can't really remember enough about it, but if I had to go, my most my favorite underrated one is Rockadoodle. That for me is number one. Trill D. I think that it's number one for me because of of all his films. I think wow. so. Because here's the thing: while something like Anastasia, while American Tale, while Land Before Time, and even All Dogs Go to Heaven. They're all well-made films. They're all, I would say, all very well-balanced mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, good thematic arcs, good voice acting. When there are songs in them, they they work well. Rockadoodle is the polar opposite of that because it is off-the-walls bonkers. <laughs> it makes no sense. It's a completely... If I were to say someone, this is what an acid dream is like, I just point... I just turn this movie on. The, yeah, this is sort of the shock treatment. And I think that's why I like it so much because and it's it the is... only of those based on an Edmund Rostand play, who <laughs> who, who most famously wrote Cyrano de Bergerac. 
who Chanticleer, I guess, also originates in the... I thought Chanticleer, though, was like a... It's like a story that you told your kids. It, like, it, it's it, a fable. It, it, the character is. Oh, I think, not an actual... I think part of the... Chanticleer, I think, is a character that originally begins in those, like, Raynard the Fox folk tales, mm-hmm. and then kind of evolved over time. I haven't read the play Chanticleer. From what I read here, it says, The play centers on the theme of idealism and spiritual insincerity, as contrasted with cynicism and artificiality. All right. Has nothing to do with a movie where a magpie wants to eat lasagna. <laughs> Has nothing to do where a... Oh, tomato sauce! Where a uh, pheasant is kind of almost sexually... Um, there's a weird Harvey Weinstein moment in this movie. Did you notice that? Very one? weird Harvey Weinstein. Well, what's his face? The Pinky. Pinky. He's essentially a Harvey Weinstein. Who is? It looks like Harvey Weinstein, actually. Played by Sorrel Book, who's most famous for being Boss Hogg in the original Dukes oh, of Hazard. Yeah. I thought for a while it was Pat Bertram or Jim Neighbors, one of those, but it's uh, Sorrel Book. Well, I, I actually, that- kind of sounded like what's his face from Smokey and the Bandit. The it, like oh, he sounded like uh, yeah 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 the, Jackie uh, Gle- yeah uh, yeah yeah Jack, um, Jackie Gleason yeah, right Jackie, uh, or is he the yeah J- yeah Jackie Gleason but well, I'm trying to think what the part is where oh it's where Pinky says to uh, Goldie you know, you want to stay in the cars honey or you gotta go and poor Audrey is like oh Pinky yeah yeah where she he's basically saying to to Goldie you have to keep uh, Chanticleer happy which is code. <laughs> and, and, and she goes, "Oh, Pinky," <laughs> which, as a kid, I never really realized. Oh, he means Bob his baloney. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but you gotta make that rooster crow if you know what I mean. <laughs> also, how amazing that Chanticleer is such, or the King is such a star that he gets his own skyscraper with a. It's like a like a hen or a rooster perch on top of a skyscraper. Well, and also going back to Pinky just for a second is that his helicopter. Oh, that's one of the greatest. That's one heli- of the greatest vehicles ever in cinema. Almost as good as Pete's RV from a Goofy. That's movie. fair. That's fair. But however, the inside of that helicopter defies all logic and physics and oh, reason. Absolutely. So while Pete's is a practical vehicle. Pinky's is an impractical for the vehicle. most part, right? Because it doesn't, yeah. Because Pinky has a um, he has a golf course, go- a, a swimming pool, golf cart, and a, oh right, he drives around <laughs> in a golf cart. Yeah, I like in his. Oh, what, what's the what's the monkey's name? Oh god! Oh god! I can't remember the monkey's name. Oh no! I just watched this the other night. Oh, it's gonna drive me crazy. I'll f- I'll find it. I'll find it. But I think and that- he and he's a he oh, Pinky must be like the most powerful fox. <laughs> Because he, he owns a studio, he owns a nightclub, right. he owns a essentially a plane that's a skyscraper, except a horizontal skyscraper. Right. He owns whatever the skyscraper is that Chanticleer well, lives the, in. Oh, the RV that has is connected to his pink Cadillac, which he which he is a little too fond of. This movie checks a lot of boxes for me in terms of. It's not dark, really. No, not really. It's, well, as a kid, I never really liked Edmund being turned into a cat, but... And, and I remember also, yeah, the, the part where the um, Grand Duke, where, where the the tree falls in, and, and it's supposed to look like a claw. Yeah. I guess it's supposed to almost look like an owl's claw breaking through. But it checks a lot of boxes because of it. it's bizarre. 
it's sometimes a musical, Murray. then sometimes it's not. Murray, give us a roll. Oh, right, right, right. It has, well, like the Tweedledee Dee song. Tweedledee Dee. That's the song. It's five seconds. Right. And actually, when. We're running out of battery. The king is being escorted into Pinky's helicopter. The frogs have something like, get away, get away, get away, get away. <laughs> And that's the song. It's one of the laziest songwriting movies you've ever seen in your life. It, it's like, well, let's take one word and repeat it 500 times. <laughs> Do we have a song? Because the song structure in this, when I think about it, there's like four of them, I think. So you have... Tweedly D, the bouncer song. The first song at the beginning is the cockadoo, what a day. The sun which is, is shining brightly. Repeated in the end. Yeah. In between that is... Uh, Goldie's little like and how weird was it for me when I finally saw Little Shop of Horrors and there's and there's Goldie Goldie. but I think that because of the fact that it's a complete and utter just wild ride much like Ambulance if you think about it for two seconds okay so here's what I was thinking this last time Edmund after he gets turned into a cat says I know the city I've been there a million times so that's why he's oh. going along for the journey. But this city is populated with animals that are living anthropomorphically. Chanticleer. Chanticleer. <laughs> Does that mean that... Edmund is knows... This, is this like a variant? Is this the... Um, is this the <laughs> are we in the multiverse? Are we in the multiverse? Are we in that where Venom yeah, lives? Weird. I never thought about it that way. Because like the whole reason he's going on for the journey is because he's been there. But also, it doesn't make a lot of sense either because... If Edmund's not even allowed to help out in the farm, right? And he's not even allowed to help them, like, get the animals into the shelter or anything like that. But that's reasonable. But he's not able to do that, but he's been to a city a million times? Well, I assume with his parents. Okay, I guess I don't so. assume he's been alone, but but how... He wasn't Kevin McAllister. Right, he, he wasn't... Hi, I'm Kevin... Peter I'm McCall- Peter McAllister. The father. And also, how terribly acted are the human actors in this movie? Like the the mother, the don't father. Leave much impression now. I heard the national guards coming. You don't get much of a sense. Hey, where's of- Shanty in the gang? <laughs> <laughs> Even when I was a kid, at the end when he opens the window, he goes, "Hey, where's Shanty in the gang?" That always annoyed the hell out of me. But the um, he, that kid was no Bastion Balthazar Bucks. Let's put no, it that way. No, I think in, this movie could have actually used a little more, more uh, Jason yeah. Jeremy Richter. <laughs> Or at least um, Jonathan Brand wasn't it? Jonathan Jonathan Brand is was he was Bastion two point Yeah, because anytime I would ever explain to people what this movie is, it's a hard pitch, and people go, "What?" I mean, they're in shock, and I have to explain to them this is a movie that I would seek out and watch a lot. Yeah, it's about a little boy who gets turned into a uh, no, well, no, it's, no, no, it's no. about a rooster. You have to back it up. Yeah. Back it up. You Go have ahead. To start how with would you how would you explain it to me? A young boy loves his favorite book which is about a rooster that's whole job is to sing the sun awake on the farm and when he is swindled into not doing that because the grand duke of owls voiced by uh Sir Von Trapp himself, Sir Christopher Plummer. Then Chanticleer is a he's deemed a fraud. He's a social outcast. He's banished. Escapes to the city to live a life of squalor, yet somehow success, and becomes the essentially the Elvis of the animal world. Back on the farm, the Grand Duke of Owls has made it so miserable and awful because it's only raining because the sun 
The sun has not come up since Seneca left. So it's just been endless rain. Now Edmund, who's a human, on the night of a horrible storm, somehow summons the Grand Duke of Owls. By shouting, Chanticleer! (laughs) And that, in turn, allows the Grand Duke of Owls to come into the human world to turn Edmund into a cat to eat him. More digestible. Kittens are rather digestible. (laughs) And then... The gang on the farm realized but that not, they need to bring... But not Edmund's farm. No, just Chanticleer's farm. farm. It, it, that's important. That's true. Because it's a different universe. Well, as soon as we hit Edmund waving his arms around and having the, the different shapes fly around him, we're in a different farm. Well, remember the animals say that they've already been on the journey to find Chanticleer. So they, they've come from wherever... Growing up, I always thought that those were Edmund's animals... But if they were Edmund's animals, Edmund would know Patu. Right. Edmund would know, presumably, Peepers Peepers and and the other one. And so they essentially make a last-ditch effort to go find Chanticleer. In order for him to come back, sing, raise the sun, stop the rain. Banish the owls forever. And save everyone on the farm. And so that's not exactly a pitch that you can, A, sum up in one sentence. No. Or B... I imagine whenever I tell someone that that's the plot of a movie I watched a lot as a kid, they are immediately trying to dial 911 and have me arrested. Do you remember when you first saw this movie? I know I had it on VHS, and I almost feel like it was a either in the the pharmacy when they used to have the VHSs to buy. It was either that or at the supermarket, and I remember seeing it, and, and somehow it just was in my house one day. But I was for sure... Still in preschool, kindergarten, because I remember watching it as a young, young, young child with a group of other kids, and they were freaked out as soon as Edmund turned into a cat. Well, you know, it's funny. We mentioned Acid Dream before. This I remember being a little kid, seeing it on TV, and knowing nothing about it, not even knowing the name of it, and then several years later, finding it on VHS and go, oh, that was the movie... That, you saw, that I saw where the boy turns into a cat and they look for the rooster. And it's, it is Totally D. <laughs> We're running out of battery. The other part that when I watched it this time that was very douche chilly is at the end when, of course, spoiler, everything gets worked out. Uh, where, <laughs> Who'd have thought? Where Edmund's dancing and he's, and he's, he's not exactly Julie Andrews and Mary <laughs> Poppins dance. Or he's not Dick Van Dyke. Well, I like to, he's he not penis that van very, lesbian. He has that very ungraceful cartwheel. Yeah. <laughs> and also because of the fact that it's like, it's that weird, like green halo around him since they yeah, clearly it, didn't it, have enough money. It wasn't to up to the properly. standard. And he does the part where he like, he like points. Yeah. He's like uh, he's like Tommy Oliver when he's jumping out of a uh, out of a plane to land in in, uh, the skydive onto Angel Grove. But when you really think about it, too, it's that the amount of people that they got to be in this crazy, crazy movie, it's astounding. I mean, you can't you can't get Von Trapp himself. You have oh um the great uh from um. 1942 what's that movie what's that movie that uh, spielberg movie 1945 and 1941 1941 from 1941 and from greece eddie deason eddie deason everyone's also favorite. known as know-it-all from the polar express uh he plays um pat too no 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 no, no. sorry uh, P- um uh, oh god 
Oh, oh, this is going to drive me crazy. He's a claustrophobic magpie. <laughs> oh, God, that's going to drive me insane. He he loves food served in the city, particularly lasagna is how his... Oh, lasagna, where have you been all my life? Want me to tell you? Snipes. Snipes, Snipes. Which sounds like a villain name. Snipes. You could definitely see that. Sykes is the villain in Oliver and Company. I like the part where... That, that part made me laugh out loud this time, where they're um they're in the trunk and they're going down the adequate pipe. That's an aqueduct pipe. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very Anthony and me, where uh the little what's his name? Uh, Patch or um not Patch. That's oh, Hunch. Right. Where he's Charles Nelson Riley. And, he, and, he, and, he, and, he, and he's thrown. He, he thinks he's thrown the the characters. They they they're trapped in a uh, essentially like what is a college moving trunk, and they are swept away into a, a storm drain. Which the and it looks like it's his aqueduct pipe, but but Punch thinks it's aqueduct pipe, and he tells Uncle Dookie, and his reaction just maybe you know. It's well, an aqueduct pipe. And because he has that magical breath, it turns him into like a half turkey thingy. Yeah, well, the part that's of... also after that really weird moment that you told me to see. Yeah, because what was it that, that there was a, in the in the longer version. I still want a director's cut of The Grand Duke. I, 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 I bet you could look on YouTube, and I, I bet it's, it's out there, that the Grand Duke originally, when he's making a pie, like you see him making the pie by putting a live skunk into the pie and then putting the top on and baking and just it. Just throwing it in the oven. But that was, I guess, deemed too adult for kids. To have a live but, animal cooked alive. But then if you look in the wide shot, when when, still when Hutch, Hutch is flying down, you can right. see the skunks, you can still see the, the skunk's head. But the part, that part made me laugh out loud. But the other part is where they're in the box and Snipe is just Snipe is just having a connection. I can't breathe. <laughs> and com- combined with the with Eddie Deason's panicked performance and, and that's the, also just pitch perfect casting yeah, because and, and and his like he, like a woodpecker against the the right. the, the, the walls and the wires are wires What did they throw they put something on his beak at one point to keep him from talking. Oh they wrapped it's like something an eraser, around? right? Yeah or like a like a like a cork. That's what it or is. Or something like that. Yeah that part also made yeah that's a that's a great Oh, the other part that always makes me laugh too, and it's later in the movie, is when it's before Tweedledee D, and it's when they're trying to call. Oh, the Stewie! Pigs. Yeah, and. Stewie! <laughs> Nobody's like, get the phone! Get the phone! <laughs> yeah, Stewie's perhaps the most underrated character. He's in this totally movie. underused. And especially, I, I, I like the part, again, this is a dark moment if you think about it, where, where, where the owls think they've won, and they got all the animals at the farm, and the Grand Duke just gets this little, like, chickadee. And he says, uh, pass the pork. And they pull and they, they pass Stewie with the with the apple in his mouth. It's, it's a very, very dark moment. <laughs> he's gonna eat he's gonna eat one of the tertiary characters. Sure. I mean, it's like saying we're gonna eat, you know, Megan. <laughs> you know? When I really stop to think about it, I know why it's not on the same level as his other ones. I think because it's too weird. It's too weird. It's too um I think because it doesn't quite say anything big i mean right there's no thematic there's no i mean i mean basically it's that edmund learns to take care of himself which is kind of a kevin McAllister arc in a way done less successfully although it's weird too when you really think about the end of the movie is that yes chanticleer goes through a change but edmund doesn't yes i think so 
I think he grows a little bit by the end of the movie. I mean, he's able to fly the airplane. Doesn't he fly the airplane at the end? I know he well, announces. No, I remember, he still stands up to. I mean, which he always did. He always stood up to the Grand Duke of Owls, but he's just like, "Hey, knock it off!" And then the Grand Duke flicks him with his finger. Right. I think I think you can make the argument that if there is a change, it's pretty imperceptible, as opposed to Shanna Clear, who, okay. Here's this the, is the here's the problem. part that I'm still confused by, and I know the nostalgia critic did a whole thing on this, uh-huh. but I didn't I didn't watch it because I don't want to watch the competition. Right. Shanna Clear, his power essentially, his right. role, his job is he crows, and by crowing, this that causes the, the sun. sun to come up. The Grand Duke's scheme is we're going to get a bully, some nameless right. bully. They essentially hire like a they hire a thug. Yeah. They, hire... they go down to Camden, <laughs> and the, the thug fights Chanticleer for a long enough time so that the sun rises without him, regardless. Meaning that, which reveals that, in fact, Chanticleer doesn't have anything to do with the sun rising. It has to do with the rotation of the earth. This disgraces to the, his fellow. Right, he is no. He's now no longer of use. Meaning, right? Meaning he was a liar the whole time. He didn't actually make the sun rise. He but does. He know that. Yeah, remember he he realizes that that the sun. Well, he right, but I think that he doesn't know that until it happens. No, no oh no no no, he didn't know. He didn't know. He didn't know. He assumed like he wasn't in on it. No, no, he had no idea that he he really thought that the sun rose because he crowed. He leaves. The sun now, for some reason, is now not rising, and it's only rain. And now the animals who have scorned him because they now know that he in fact does not have the power to raise the sun, want to go find him so that he can raise the sun. So there's a couple problems. And the first being that it makes no sense. <laughs> but even on a rainy day, the sun is still up. Oh, well, if you, if you take it that literally, yes, <laughs> there's that problem too. The, the sun is still up. It's just hidden no, no, by no, rain clouds. No, no. In, remember in this, he right in this yells the sun... at the rain and the, and the cloud goes away. You sail with my rainbow. Say, oh, nasty rain cloud. <laughs> Sun will shine. Okay, there's that logical problem that... Right. Well, there's the main logical problem, which is that roosters don't talk. <laughs> and if they did, they wouldn't sound like Glenn Campbell. Yeah. But they never actually explain why it is that the sun rises on the day that Chanticleer doesn't. Right, and they never explain why the animals suddenly now think he can cause the sun to rise. When it was clearly established in that scene that the whole reason he left the farm was because the animals turned against him. Because he couldn't make the, because the sun rose without him. And that, right, he's just, he's of no real use. So why now all of a sudden have has the rules changed? Why or now is, is there that, a magical reason that he can cause the sun Is to it rise? that he's the closest thing they would get to having a way to... Yeah, maybe maybe they think, well, he's our only shot to get the sun to rise. He's not crowing, so the sun isn't rising. Okay, fine. But in the internal logic of the story, it's established that, no, in fact, he does not make the sun rise. <laughs> so right. why now is the sun obeying to the rule that was proven false? And I guess the question is, too, then, if we are going off of the logic that Chanticleer actually does have the power to move the sun around the Earth, then how come it did just that, rise that one time? Ta- yeah, how come How come there's one instance where the sun rose without him? 
Now, if they explain that that happens in the story once every hundred years or some maybe another I don't know but the film the, the text itself it doesn't explain it <laughs> if you are if you are going by the uh, new criticism literary analysis method <laughs> for rockadoodle and you and you solely follow the parameters of the text uh-huh. there is no in-universe reason by and the I, way who cares <laughs> well I care because I've been asking this question I care for too years. and even as a kid I remember thinking, huh, that doesn't make very much sense. Because it's never then... Well, I guess it ultimately ends up not mattering. Because Chanticleer does actually have the power. And also, why does the sunbeam turn the Grand Duke into a little Because they hit the sun. But why... But... Well, because remember, is that when he's becoming the tornado? Well, remember he became giant, and then he turned into a small? I guess because the power of the sun is enough to strike his tornado down and i'm willing to accept that i suppose although it does have funny and still extremely dark implications in the end of it which is that hunch is now going to eat his own (laughs) uncle here's another plot hole i just thought of i'm sure someone else has got to have said this lay down the owls don't like light right even flashlight oh okay how come he can stand in front of that blazingly bright oven, which is shooting nothing but bright, boiling light at him? Well, aren't they also in the city at one point? Or no? I'm not, no, I'm... only Hunch, and Hunch has to wear sunglasses. Right. Now, I'm willing to accept, okay, maybe firelight is different, is different. than sunlight. That's a stretch, but it's it, it's at least, it provides at least some kind of answer <laughs> that... I just think that this is the movie that keeps on giving because it's something that you can revisit all the time. Not only find new moments that just make you gut bust laugh because of the delivery of the great performers. Like um, Phil Harris, who I always forget is in this movie until he talks. Which happens immediately. Because he was, of course, Baloo. Most famously was Baloo. And I also read that apparently that was added in post-production. The, his narration. His narration that kids were having a hard time following along. Rightfully with so, the, because with the, uh, this, it, the movie's crazy. I mean... But the plot where... Uh, All right, so what was your, what's your new favorite part? The aqueduct, where, where, he, where he shouts about the aqueduct. Where he gets... Turn, yeah. Like p- pipe. I think my favorite part... Or the part where, they, where they're going down the river, and it says Dairy King. <laughs> As a cool reference to... Dairy, Dairy Queen. Queen. Do you understand the level of humor? I like the part when he's let out of the club by the frogs and they go, get away, get away, get away, get away. <laughs> oh, here's one other little, little weird in-universe thing. There's a, I think, I, I think it's in Pinky's car uh-huh. where they have a tiger skin rug, like a white tiger skin rug. Oh my God. I never thought about that. Think about the implications. That's literally like having, that's like, like having Megan as a throw rug. <laughs> Obscure Obsessions 2 is directed and produced by Taylor and Nick Sicario and is a co-production with Tan Productions. Special thanks to Anchor for podcast distribution and to Twin Musicom and Walpurnia Music for providing the score. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for episode details, previews, and more. 
And check out our blog at obscureobsessionsblog.blogspot.com for movie recommendations, lists, reviews, and articles. We thank you for your continued support.